The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. You are listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, Boris Johnson's position as Prime Minister could be under threat if the virus lockdown in England lasts into late spring because Conservative MP Steve Baker has urged colleagues in the COVID recovery group to stress their concerns. He said it was, quote, imperative you equip the chief whip today with your opinion that debate will become about the PM's leadership if the government doesn't set out a clear plan for when our full freedoms will be restored. Well, the CRG has around 70 MPs, all of whom are very wary of lockdown measures. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how worried exactly I would be about this in Boris Johnson's shoes, but it is the first time we're hearing the words leadership uh, with the assumption addition of challenge um, in this context in a really serious way. The pressure is also mounting, though, on the Chancellor Rishi Sunak, a powerful bloc of Conservatives, and the British Chambers of Commerce, the uh, business group, are calling on the Treasury to step up coronavirus assistance. BCC Director of Policy James Martin says many people can't wait for the budget in March and need certainty to help protect jobs. They need more cash flow support and the furlough scheme needs to be made much more generous and all of it needs to be guaranteed for 12 months. And unless the government takes that really kind of ambitious action to support the wealth creators and the job providers, then we're all going to suffer and we're all going to have a really difficult couple of years. That was the BCC Director of Policy, James Martin. But that thought was echoed by 50 Tory MPs from the Northern Research Group who say Rishi Sunak should extend tax breaks and a temporary uplift in benefits. It's also warning of a series of cliff edges faced by families and businesses as various support programmes are due to close. Now, let's speak to uh, our first guest in this programme. This is a special on the economic impact of the pandemic. In the second part, we're going to talk about how the UK goes about paying off its debt. First, we've got to look at the near term, the economy shrinking by 2.6% in November as England was placed into lockdown for a second time. Uh, so to, to speak about this, we're joined now by Siobhan McDonough. She's Labour MP for Mitcham and Morden and member of the Treasury Select Committee. Uh, now, Siobhan, good to have you with us. The Chancellor yeah. saying this morning, it's clear things are going to get harder before they get better. So a pretty realistic attitude, I think we can see. How much worse do you see things getting here? Well, I think things could get an awful lot worse, couldn't they? I mean, people's uh, savings, the businesses, the money they have running out, not enough support um, through uh, government uh, schemes, you know, it's going to be tougher and more businesses making a decision that their businesses can't come back from the brink and making people redundant. 
Is it really a question now, do you think, of of putting in a vast amount of support to try and keep everything afloat? Uh, in effect, opening up the taps uh, and saying, let's just spend to keep the whole economy together until better times. Um, I, I think that's got to be the strategy. And, and on the Treasury Select Committee, uh, we're seeing economists from right across the political spectrum, left to right, all are saying, spend now. Uh, and start repaying much later when things get better. But don't increase taxes now. Don't cut back now. Give the support that is needed. So what about the time frame? I mean, the, the issue with the pandemic is that at every stage, we haven't really known what was around the corner in September or over the summer, rather. There was that general feeling that things were getting better. Of course, that didn't turn out to be the case. And as a result, you've seen the Treasury strategy to be sort of a few months at a time. Uh, and, and you've seen many announcements from the Chancellor throughout the period. Do we need to be looking at, at longer horizons in terms of creating this certainty? It certainly seems to be what the BCC was calling for, uh, as we mentioned at the top of the programme. Yeah, I think what we've got to do is stop this false di dichotomy that it's the economy or it's health. Because without the health of people, the economy is in trouble anyway. Um, you could argue, and at this point, there's little point in, uh, you know, looking back. But had we been more cautious in the summer uh, in opening up businesses and starting eat, uh, eat out to help out, uh, perhaps we'd been further along with challenging the virus. Um, so the point is, in order to have uh, a sort of economy we want after the virus has been uh, beaten, uh, we need to provide the support right now. And, you know, so much depends on the on the rollout of the vaccine. Um, I'm seeing different reports, but suggesting that it might take until the autumn to um, give the vaccine to everyone. Um, and hopefully, the more, the, the more quickly we do it, the more quickly we can get back to normal. But a lot of people are falling through the gaps, despite the generosity, and it has to be yeah. said it is generous, a lot of people yeah. are falling through the gaps, a lot of businesses are falling through the gaps. I mean, this is just not yeah. a system that seems to be encompassing the people it needs to. Well, I think the problem is uh, the lack of systems that are available. I think the HMRC, the Inland Revenue, have done very well over the furloughing and the self-employed scheme. But as you say, as you say, people are still uh, falling through the cracks simply because the system... Um, can't cope with them. So in my constituency in South London, I have an awful lot of companies who supply to the hospitality sectors, uh, florin, uh, florist, laundry, lighting, staging, and they are receiving very, very little support because they are not immediately hospitality sector, but they are part of the support network. And it's just really frustrating seeing this amazing businesses being excluded from any real support. What is the solution to that? Because you do get the impression that uh, out of necessity, obviously, as the Chancellor has said, you can't save every business. But it does mean that the government has had to make choices about the sort of sectors that it protects and those that it gives less attention to. I'm not sure that it's been in a position to make those uh, considered choices. I think it had to. I think the government had to use the systems that already existed. Um, so have drawn things very tightly. You know, the businesses I'm talking about, they, they provide exhibition stands, they provide lighting to concerts and theatre. They are all thriving businesses that are highly technical, highly experienced. There's no question that they would come back um, after those venues open, yet they are persistently excluded. It really doesn't make any sense at all. 
Siobhan, apart from the specifics of what should be done, the amounts of money involved, I think, are a key issue. Because in the past, Labour has been very careful to say it's not uh, going to be uh, difficult, with, it's not going to be uh, uh, lavish with people's money, with taxpayers' money. That's been a big way uh, of gaining Labour respectability in economic terms. Now, the government at the moment is sort of outspending almost what uh, Labour has promised in the past. So uh, that seems to all be gone. But is this a moment where Labour says, yeah, actually, we should just spend as much as we need. There should not be a limit. And people will have to get used to that and not think we're necessarily extravagant. Uh, well, I think that not just Labour, but um, most parties, most economists appreciate um, that we are in uncharted waters, uh, times when we could never have imagined what was going to happen. And we know, well, we know from... Um, the austerity that um, the coalition brought, government brought in in 2010, that if we don't spend the money now when we need it, we're going to kill the economy for the long term. Uh, so the support is needed now, uh, and I don't think that could be regarded as politically extreme or reckless. It's where most people are. And what about the vaccine? I mean, this is the thing that people look to in terms of putting an end to the pandemic. The hope is also uh, that, that it starts to see a lift in the economy again as more and more people are able to go about their normal lives. How do you see it impacting the, the economy, particularly with regards to the speed of the recovery? Well, you're absolutely right. The two are intrinsically, um, um, intrinsically connected. Uh, the sooner we can make sure that all the very vulnerable people are, um, uh, are are vaccinated. We can we will take the pressure off our health services. The sooner more of us are vaccinated, the sooner businesses will open and people will go back to uh, using those services. It's key. There can be uh, no economic recovery without the vaccination, and that's why I am kind of I'm anxious at the ability of the government. Um, to roll it out as fast as they want to or as fast as we need to. I mean, if I were them, um, I, would be, um, I would be doing 24-hour-a-day vaccinations. And I don't know if you've seen the level of vaccination in London is less than anywhere else in the country. Um, and where I want everybody to be vaccinated, if we're not up to par in London, then that economy nationally is not recovering anytime soon. Siobhan, I suppose there's twin tracks here because you've got the, the, the vaccine which is helping the economy to recover and hopefully the, the spending that will help the recovery as well. But that recovery will help pay off the spending in the longer term. I mean, what's the relationship with, with the debt, the public debt going forward? Do we just spend whatever is necessary and pay it off whenever we can? Uh, well, I think we've got to spend what is needed now. I mean, I wouldn't suggest that we spend money on things like uh, that don't, that aren't, it aren't good things to spend your money on. You do have to question track and trace and how much that costs and just how effective it is. Um, but the point is, right now, people, businesses, public services need the support to get over through the next three, three a few months. Uh, and then we need to let the economy uh, get back for businesses to reopen and we um, repay the money when people and, and, and the economy is in a position to do so and not before. Uh, and very briefly then, uh, what about businesses or industries that just don't feel like they're going to survive beyond? Is it worth preserving those jobs, even though we know that the businesses themselves may not outlast? Well, I'm not sure that government is the right uh, organisation to be picking the winners and losers, really. 
Um, I mean, we see it, we're seeing huge changes in retail, um, but, you know, issues about pubs and or hospitality, restaurants, hotels, I don't really see any reason why they will not uh, uh, cope and thrive in the future, but they desperately need the support right now. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Let's explore further then the idea of what a huge public debt incurred to support the economy during the pandemic is actually going to mean for the UK. Now, many economists are drawing parallels with the borrowing that financed Britain during the Second World War, some of which wasn't fully paid off until 2006. Well, joining us now to discuss what parallels could be drawn is Duncan Needham, who's director of the Centre for Financial History at Cambridge University. Duncan, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. I mean, just for comparison, how much debt did we incur from the Second World War and is it comparable in some ways to the scale of borrowing we might need now? We exited the Second World War with debt at about 250% uh, of uh, GDP. Um, but it was actually still pretty high as a consequence of the First World War. So the First World War, we exit about 180% of GDP. That comes down a little bit during the interwar period. It's about 250%. Now, current estimates suggest that we're going to be at about 107%. Obviously, that's a very moving target, but about 107% as a consequence as we come out of, uh, out of the pandemic. And then looking ahead a bit, um, after the Second World War, we got a recovery. But how damaging was the debt that was incurred in, in both world wars to that post-war recovery? It, well, it was much more damaging, actually, after the, after the First World War. And that's a consequence, really, of the economic policy that was pursued between the wars. Now, after the Second World War, we had pretty strong growth. We had you know, what's often referred to as the golden age of capitalism, not just in Britain, but elsewhere between 1950 and really up to the oil shock in, in 1973. So, so pretty respectable growth, you know, getting on for 4% per annum here, much higher in Germany and, and, and France. But really what reduces the burden and, and, and what we'll need to do to reduce the burden going forward is, is not to pay down the debt because history shows us that we never really pay down the debt. It's very difficult to do. Um, the way you get out from under the debt is with growth. So we had reasonably good growth after the Second World War and moderately high inflation, again, averaging about about 4% after the Second World War. But it was much more problematic after the First World War because what we actually had after the First World War is deflation, and that really increases the, the burden of your debt. So it comes down rapidly um, after the Second World War through a combination of growth, primarily growth, but also added uh, inflation. But as we know, uh, it's a standby at the moment, there is almost no inflation right now and isn't likely yeah. to be, according to most economists, for quite a while yet. And growth yeah. isn't necessarily in our gift, I suppose, unless, perhaps controversially, we spend more to try and initiate that growth. 
No, absolutely. As, 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 as Paul Krugman said, uh, productivity isn't everything, but in the long run, it, it really is everything. Um, so one way or another, we're going to have to increase the productivity in the economy, so, so long as we maintain the 2% inflation target. I don't, I don't think that's in, in, in any doubt for the, uh, for the short to medium term. So one way or another, we're going to have to increase the productivity in our economy. And that's, again, the less, lesson of history. The, the, the way we were able to get out from under the debt in the 19th century was essentially the Industrial Revolution. It was the you know the 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 diffusion of technology steam technology um technology in the um in the textiles industry um that reduces the burden in the 19th century uh, and we'll have to do that again and and what's the best way of doing that i I mean are we looking at startups here are we looking to silicon roundabout to get us out of this or is there another way for that productivity that growth boom after this pandemic is over well (laughs) The interesting thing about technology is it's not so much invention. Obviously, invention is, is, is very, very important. Innovation and invention is very, very important. But what, what's really important about technology is the diffusion of technology. Um, I, I'm a historian, so obviously I'm going I'm to dwell on the, on the historical examples. But it, it, it's all very well inventing the steam engine. But it's really the diffusion of the steam engine, probably you know, until the Internet, the most important technological breakthrough in human history. A steam engine is one thing, but it's really only when you put a steam engine on wheels and you get a train or you put a steam engine in a, in a ship and you, and you get a steamship, that you really start to reap the benefits of that technological innovation. So probably, sorry, long answer to your question, but probably the technological innovations are already out there. But what's going to matter is the diffusion of those technological innovations. So another Nobel Prize winning economist, Solo, pointed out in, in the 1990s that you could see the information technology revolution everywhere except in the productivity and growth figures. Now, he was then sort of proved right, as it, as it were, because you then did get technologically-led growth in the late 1990s and, and, and into the noughties. So one hopes that those technological innovations are already there, but we just need to see them diffuse throughout the economy. Well, as you say, that is hope. Uh, but what we do know for certain is the levels of debt that are being pushed up. Is the Chancellor right? On the basis of what you're saying about the fact that, in a way, it's not the bad worst time to have a debt, should he just confidently open the taps, uh, the sky's the limit, uh, borrow as much as he sees fit? Well, uh, this is where there's a problem with focusing on the debt-to-GDP ratio. Um, from an economist's perspective, it's an incoherent ratio because debt is a stock and GDP is a flow. What we should, of course, be focusing on and what historical figures focused on was the cost of servicing the debt, because then at least you're being coherent by comparing a flow with a flow. The cost of servicing the debt with interest rates at, I mean, I just looked at the 30-year rate on, on, on Bloomberg a moment ago, I mean, it's, it's, it's less than 1%. So what we should be doing is terming out the debt as much as possible because the cost of servicing debt is, is so low at the moment. It's actually gone down um, during, during the pandemic with interest rates uh, dropping. And what we should be doing, I mean, this is the second of the P's. The first P that's going to save us is productivity. The second of the P's is, is perpetual debt. And what our predecessors and what the Chancellor's predecessors did was issued perpetual debt. And with interest rates so low at the moment, it's almost as if we have an obligation upon future generations to issue as much long-dated, even perpetual debt at these rates as we possibly can. Because it's a truism. You don't go bust, whether you're an individual, a company, or a country, purely by having a lot of debt. You go bust because you can't service your debt. And with interest rates so low at the moment, and, and probably going to stay fairly low for a while, we have no problem servicing our debt at the moment. Therefore, we should be terming it out as much as possible. And what is the impact then on young people of that? I mean, given rates are low now, yes, but this is ultimately an issue where the older generation are going to die before the debt gets paid off and it falls on 
the younger generation? Is it still going to have an adverse impact in a scenario where we're already seeing that the sands have shifted and, and young people are having a harder time of it for various reasons than perhaps the, the older generations did? Well, two points on that. If you can push out the maturity of your debt at these low interest rates for as long as possible, that's going to reduce the future burden on, on, on generations, including the young people that, that, that are suffering um, at the moment. So that's why I say we almost have an obligation to lock in these low interest rates for, for as long as we possibly can. So, I mean, as I said a moment ago, you, you never really pay down the debt. Um, all, all you can do is, is reduce the future burden of it, and you do that by, by pushing out the maturity into 50 years, 100 years, or, or even perpetual debt if, if you possibly can. But your point about older people is a very interesting one, because you probably have to raise taxes a, a little bit um, just, just to show some willing. And given that the economy has been shut down essentially to protect the older and more vulnerable members of our community, then it probably makes sense that the burden of taxation, and I don't think we should be raising taxes a lot at the moment, probably should fall on the older generation, particularly the wealthier members of that older generation, because a lot of the wealth is tied up in property. Uh, and, that, and that's probably where a uh, you know, more efficient tax should fall. But talking about taxes and, and, and the burden, therefore, with the will come, I, and people say, well, with the war, that was an existential issue. Uh, we literally had the prospect of the UK ceasing to exist. This isn't quite like that. So is such a huge debt and the consequent taxation you're talking about actually justified? I would suggest respectfully that the pandemic is just as much of an existential issue um, as the war. I mean, if we look at the ex uh, excess deaths at the moment, they're, they're at the highest level since since the Second World War. I, I, I think I think it is uh, on a par w uh, with a war, um, actually, and, and our response probably should be as well. Um, you, you have the idea of generational equity. It, it's it's never fair to charge the entire cost of a war on the generation that has experienced in the war, and in many ways, you know, fighting the war. You know, people uh, were, were, con were conscripted, um, and it's also economically inefficient to charge it all on one generation. So it makes sense to smooth out the cost of the pandemic over uh, future generations, uh, and I think that, as I say, that's what we should be doing by turning out the debt to, to, to the extent that we can. And I mean, what about the uh, impact on the UK, its creditworthiness, uh, if it builds up this huge debt uh, sort of on an international level? Is there a risk then that it will be hard to find people who will lend their money to the UK government and, and that sort of scuppers your, your borrowing plans? Well, um, uh, to the extent that the credit rating agencies focus on the debt-to-GDP ratio, that's, that's certainly a concern. I mean, uh, you know, while I, uh, we shouldn't be panicking about the level of debt um, uh, at the moment, um, it's certainly not without historical precedent. In fact, we've been at these levels for m most of our modern history since the Bank of England was set up in, in 1694. And the point is that you are always going to have a, a lender of last resort in the shape of the Bank of England. So we've got you know, about a quarter of the national debt sitting on the Bank of England's balance sheet at the moment as a, as a consequence of quantitative easing and the asset purchases. That, again, has lots of historical precedent. So if we go back to the start of the 18th century, you had more than 50% of the national debt sitting on the balance sheet of the Bank of England, the South Sea Company, and the East India Company. So, you know, again, it, it's not unusual for the Bank of England to be sitting on a big chunk of, of the national debt. In fact, one might say it's actually usual uh, for that to happen in British history. So it may be that, you know, individual investors don't want to buy the national debt, but the Bank of England will always be there to backstop it. But they won't want to buy if they're not getting much in the way of yield. I mean, bonds are not attractive at the moment, are they? I suspect the Bank of England will do what it's told. <laughs>
a, a fair reflection. Do you, I mean, what's the time scale there? When, when will we really know how big a debt we've got, do you think? Well, that's difficult to say. I mean, uh, you, you know, I, I, I wrote a short article on this um, a, a year ago where where we were looking at settling. The prediction then that was that we'd been settling out at about 95% debt, debt to GDP now. I mean, that's obviously gone up, uh, and it looks like we'll, we'll, we'll settle it about possibly 10% higher. I mean, it, it all depends on how the, the pandemic plays out, how quickly we can get you know, back, vaccinations done. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I'm a historian. We're, we're, we're not in the future prediction um, business <laughs> because we end up looking very, very foolish um, if, we, if we try and do that. Um, but, but let's assume that we end up just, just above 100% um, debt to GDP. Then it really is all about, you know, how quickly we can grow our way out of uh, out of yeah. this you know how quickly we can grow the denominator of that debt to gdp ratio and that really is all about improving productivity bloomberg westminster listen weekdays at noon on dab digital radio in london hi everyone i'm paul anka and i'm skip bronson and what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies you get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.